And thank you so much for having me. Um, I got to show up on Friday night for your Advent lessons and carol service, and it was so beautiful. And I just knew in about 30 seconds, there's something special going on here. Um, so praise the Lord. I mean, it was just, there was just a spirit of worship and warmth in the room. And uh, as I was uh, in your midst of the congregation, and then Cameron came up and just brought this beautiful word from scripture that's connecting themes from the garden and all the way up until the new creation. And then we sang some more and the band sounded so good. And then Nick got up and shared this really deep insight from the word and the gospel was made so clear. And I'm like, man, if I was a part of this flock, this emerging flock, I would feel like blessed. I'm like, there's, there's treasures here, like in the people of God, in the leaders that you have. Um, I, I, like, I, I was just blessed by what they brought. I'm like, I want to learn more from these guys, right? And um, one of the things that I just want to say, because I do feel like, uh, 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 over the last year or so, I've gotten to really be friends with Cameron and Nick, um, and not just not just colleagues, not just somebody who prays about mission together, but we've really been able to become friends. And I think what what's unique about the leaders that the Lord has given for this emerging church plant is that they're both evangelists. They are both passionate about sharing the gospel. Uh, they do that not just through preaching, but, you know, just going out and talking to people and, you know, witnessing to the people who are coming and working on their septic system at their house or whatever the case may be. But, um, but they're also passionate worshipers, um, people of prayer. So that's just such a great combination. Um, and I don't think that it's on accident that this church is called Adoration. Because as passionate as Cameron and Nick are about evangelism and church planting and things like that, they know that at the heart of it um, is a passion for Jesus. And um, I don't know why, this might be for somebody who's here this morning, but I just felt moved um, while we were worshiping the Lord. And that was just so good and so refreshing just to sing to the Lord with you all that... Um, you know, it's interesting because um, the temptations of the devil um, have immediate payoff, but they, in the long run, they never pay out. Um, but with Jesus, the call is actually really high and really hard, but in the end, it's worth it. Right? It's like the devil wants to feed us like this sort of like, Cool Ranch Doritos diet, you know? And it's like, I kind of like some Cool Ranch Doritos sometimes, you know? But if you try to make a meal out of that, and let's say you try to make a meal out of that day after day for several days or for several weeks, like in the end, you would look like you had made a diet out of Cool Ranch Doritos. <laughs> and uh, you wouldn't last very long, right? Um, but this is, you know, Jesus came that we might have joy and have it to the full. But the way that we have that is he calls us, he says, anyone who tries to keep his life will lose it. Anyone who's willing to lose his life for my sake will truly find it. And um, I don't know what temptations you're facing um, or addictions. I mean, it's such a good analogy, addictions, 
for where sin ultimately ends up leaving us, isn't it? Because um, you, maybe it's something that's initially, you know, pleasurable or desirable to you, but it has over time less and less payoff and you have less and less freedom. You know, but whereas Jesus, he would say this, not just when he was talking to the three, not just when he was talking to the 12, but when he was talking to the crowds, he would say crazy things like, take up your cross daily and follow me. He would say, anybody who loves their mother or their children more than me isn't worthy of me. And the crowds are like, holy smokes. I mean, like, who has the audacity to say that unless it's true? So I was just... um, struck as we were singing holy there is no one like you there is none beside you he's worthy worthy of every song we could ever sing worthy of anything that he's calling us to sacrifice because he calls us that we might have joy and have it to the full and the devil you know the devil's never been able to invent a pleasure he just perverts the pleasures that the lord gives us the Lord of creation, the good Lord of creation, right? Oh, well, um, well, before I get uh, and dive into um, talking a bit more um, about strategy and thinking a little bit about you all being a part of a core team of an emerging church plant, some of you guys are like, this is only my first or second time being here. I didn't know I was being enlisted into the Navy SEALs of the church planting world. That's okay. Some of you are uh, at different places. Um, I think it'll be a good glimpse into um, the future and direction of of adoration and some things that will be needed of you as you go forward either way. But um, it would be helpful to just share um, a little bit of my testimony, a little bit of my story, um, and a little bit of the story of our church plant. so, uh, um, as Nick mentioned, um, I'm over in Tallahassee. I'm there with my wife, Carissa, and then we have two daughters that are about to be 16 and 14. And <laughs> uh, just to tell you, um, I was telling Nick and, uh, and Cameron when we were meeting yesterday that the, mo- you know, the most important thing for them to do right now is um, to set a tone of love in the church love for the lord and love for one another Um, love is the most important thing it's the most excellent thing the apostle paul says Um, and just to tell a story about my uh my firstborn when she was about i can't remember if she was like three or four i think she was four years old it's bringing her to uh um like this little kind of like you know two or three hour um uh uh, preschool. And I had just finished talking to my neighbor just before we got in the car and we were just kind of like talking and going back and forth about something. I'm like, yeah, man, absolutely. I know that's right. Yeah, whatever. You know, so I get in the car and, uh, and my daughter says, dad, um, is anyone in the world smarter than us? <laughs> and I was like, yes, baby. <laughs> there are a lot of people in this world smarter than us. And, uh, and she goes, who? <laughs> who? <laughs> she didn't believe me. Right? 
And I said, well, I mean, you never know. Uh, her name's Avila. And I said, you never know, Avila. Um, you know, you might be talking to somebody and you might think you're smarter than them, but you come to find out that they're actually a lot smarter than you. And I said, but, but anyway, um, there's, there's a lot more important things in this world than who's the smartest. I said, you know, like, like love. And, uh, and then I, you know, I'm trying to talk to her while I'm driving. I'm looking into the rearview mirror a little bit, and I see the gears of her brain turning a little bit. And she said, well, how would you know that love is the most important unless you were smart? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, where did this come from? And uh, so, I, you know, sometimes you don't know how to answer your own kids' questions, even when they're four. And I was like, all right, Avila, listen. Would you rather be really, really smart and a really bad and unloving person, or would you rather be a really loving person that's not very smart? And she said, I'd rather be smart and loving. <laughs> and I said, well, of course, and I think you are smart and loving, but I, that's not what I asked you. Would you rather be really bad person and... Uh, and, and really smart, or would you rather be a, a really loving person who's not that smart? She's like, loving. <laughs> I said, okay, yeah, uh, good girl, go to school, <laughs> you know? Um, so I, I, I got out of that one. So um, I have very precocious kids. Um, my wife and I moved to Tallahassee in uh, 2004, uh, just after getting married, to um, start uh, to replant InterVarsity Christian Fellowship on Florida State, on Florida State's campus, and it's a really unlikely story that I ended up being a campus minister because I didn't actually grow up going to church. Um, I was uh, baptized in the Catholic Church, um, but never really went to church growing up. I didn't come from a particularly religious family. I remember when I was in college. Um, I took this class called Disturbing Philosophical Questions, and uh, it was as interesting as it sounded. You know, we looked at arguments for the existence of God, against the existence of God, you know, we, uh, we, for the fact that human beings have free will, against the fact that they do, you know, we read the Communist Manifesto, and we read some of the central writings of the Buddhist faith, and we, you know, read some stuff from the Christian faith, and we were sort of weighing all this stuff, and I just remember I was like, I love this. Like, I've always wanted to explore this stuff. And uh, so I adopted Socrates' maxim. He said, the unexamined life is not worth living. I said, I haven't really examined this stuff. I need to examine it. And so I was, you know, reading about these different religions, reading about these different philosophers, but I was also starting to read the Bible for the first time. And I was so struck by the New Testament, and especially about Jesus. And at the time, I think I wanted all religions to be equally true. Like, that's what I wanted to be the case. But I was also trying to be honest, because I believed in God, and I would just pray. I remember praying before I read the Bible, God, if this is true, like, I pray that you'd reveal that to me. But if it's not, like, I pray that it would just be sifted out, you know. And I didn't even have the assumption that the Bible was true. But... Um, the more that I tried to be honest, the more I realized, yeah, there's some overlap in these religions and philosophies, um, but everywhere where they diverge, I agree with Jesus, and that there was a uniqueness to the person of Jesus that began to captivate me. Meanwhile, I started going to this campus fellowship 
where we had such a tangible experience with the presence of God. So there was this kind of intellectual journey, but then there started to be this spiritual journey where I felt like I was meeting God in a very personal way. And I was seeing healing, and I was seeing my skeptical philosophy friends discover the same thing and end up coming to know the Lord. And so in a very relatively short time, I you know, became a part of this campus ministry, and then uh, me and my wife and you know, then-girlfriend, um, you know, who did not start our relationship in the most Christian of ways, physically and otherwise, or whatever, we started to kind of re-examine all that sort of stuff and try to put the line back on the spool, you know, which we realized we couldn't do without God's help. And then God started working in our lives, and we started leading Bible study and leading some of our friends to the Lord. And all of a sudden, our campus minister was asking me if I would consider doing campus ministry. And I was like, ministry? <laughs> like, like, I did not grow up in this. I did not bargain for this. But um, because of the worthiness of Jesus, I was like, well, whatever's happened in these last few years, like, I want everybody to know this. Like, I want everybody to experience this. So, so I remember telling a common table back when they were meeting, you know, I, I remember I was going to go to grad school for philosophy, and I, I felt like, well, could I serve the Lord as a philosophy professor? Well, yes. Could I serve the Lord as a campus minister? Of course, you know. But as I tried to surrender those things on the altar, I felt like um, what the Lord revealed to me was that the philosophy professor path had, didn't have to really do with loving him and serving other people. It had more to do with how I wanted to view myself, you know, how I wanted to you know, think of myself and my own identity, and that the Lord was telling me I needed to learn to serve people. So like really unexpected to me of like, you know, almost 20 years now in ministry and campus ministry planting and then church planting. Uh, I didn't really think this was my path, but I love it. I love church planting. I love being with you. Um, I love, I was just on a Zoom team meeting on Thursday night with another church plant in, in North St. Augustine. Like I love these kinds of conversations because um, I don't think church planting is just like some sort of like added extra in the body of Christ for like a few like zealous souls who are really passionate about evangelism. Um, I think it is um, the natural, necessary, biblical shape of the church. So when you think of the Great Commission where Jesus says, you know, all he gets his 11 disciples with him on the mountain, says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. So I, I, it's interesting because that passage sort of sparks a debate between the evangelism people and the discipleship people, if you've ever noticed that, right? So the evangelism people emphasizing the go, emphasizing the all nations, emphasizing the baptism, right? are like, this is totally about like evangelism. Like we need to get out there and go, we need to tell people about Jesus. And then the discipleship people are like, no, they're, they're emphasizing the make disciples. It's not just converts evangelism people, you know, make disciples. And it says, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. So there's this sort of debate, is, is the Great Commission about evangelism, is it about discipleship? And of course it's about both, right? But it, to some extent, both of those answers um, fall short. Because if you look at the rest of the New Testament, 
the way that the apostles lived out the Great Commission was not just through individualistic evangelism or individualistic discipleship. The apostles, and, and they would be people who would have a, a pretty good idea of what Jesus had in mind. Right? They got to spend 40 days with him after the resurrection. Right? Um, the way they seemed to interpret the Great Commission was church planting. So you read the book of Acts, you read the rest of the New Testament, and what they did is they went into these new cities, they went into these new areas, and they started new churches, new communities that would become sort of a kingdom hub for evangelism and for discipleship and for compassion to the poor and things like that. But it wasn't interpreted as just this almost like individualistic mission for each individual disciple, right? It was interpreted in a communal way as a call to start new communities that follow Jesus. And so I'm excited about what's going on here with adoration because I just think that is just part of the church continuing to obey the Great Commission that Jesus has given us. Um, and so I, um, I want to talk to you, maybe I'll tell you a little bit more about the story of incarnation, but I'm a preacher, so I can just kind of keep going. So I should probably dive into what I wanted to talk to you about tonight, today. Um, so um, what I wanted to begin um, by sharing a little bit about, and then we're actually going to open it up for any questions that you might have, okay? But um, the, this other church planter that I was meeting with, um, their team on Thursday night over Zoom, the question that they had, and they're, they're in a similar place as you, similar size. Um, the question that, but they've, they've been together longer, and the, the question they had is, how do we know when we're ready to like really launch publicly? Not just kind of be like a, you know, we're sort of growing a little bit by word of mouth, but we're not necessarily like plastering our meeting time for all everyone to see yet, all that sort of stuff. How do we know when we're ready to, to publicly launch? And, um, I talked to them about five signs that I was looking for that we were ready to launch. I think we had a core team when we started Incarnation in Tallahassee of about 40 people. And most of them were former InterVarsity students of ours that were like young professionals or young families at this time. They're people that we had had a lot of time with, had been able to disciple and invest in. But we still weren't ready to launch. And one of the biggest mistakes that a church can make is launching too early um, and there's a there's a sort of setting of the dna um, before it was ready to be set so to speak um, so i want to talk about um, five signs that you all should be looking for to say okay we're ready we're ready to to begin to think about moving on from this preparatory phase into you know realization okay so, um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna list these five here, and then uh, as I said, I'm happy to answer any questions you have about them. So, um, so the first thing that we were looking for um, is that there were viable small groups going on in the church, um, and specifically, we wanted there to be. A number of small groups happening in the middle of the week that weren't being led by the clergy, that weren't being led by the planters. And the reason is, is because um, if you launch a church, um, 
just on the basis of a Sunday service, um, then you're not really launching a community, you're launching a meeting, right? And the thing about small groups in the middle of the week, whatever form they might take, it could take like a, some of you guys meet for Bible study or some of you meet for evening prayer or some of you are doing alpha or something like that. Could, could look a number of ways. The importance of it is having like two touches with one another in a week, not just on Sunday service, but we meet together throughout the week for discipleship, to know one another and be known by one another, to learn from the word, to let other people besides, you know, uh, Cameron and Nick to be able to use their spiritual gifts. These sorts of things are really important if we're actually going to be forming a community with one another, right? So we want to know each other. We want to be discipling one another. We want to be encouraging one another. So that was one sign we were looking for. And before incarnation started, we had four small groups that were up and running and had been going for a little while. And, um, and o- uh, only one of them was being led by a clergy person. So, um, so that was a sign for us that we were ready. Um, second, um, um, is that, um, let, let, me, let me put it this way, uh, that you develop a culture of invitation. So a culture of invitation amongst all of you. Um, you all need to be a part of fishing for new potential members of adoration rather than just um, relying on the clergy to do that. So you all have certain relational inroads in your neighborhood, um, with family members that live in the area, uh, with coworkers, um, people that you know, um, you know, are on your kids, uh, parents of people who are on your kids' soccer teams, or, or whatever the case may be for you. You all have your own natural relational inroads and there needs to be sort of like an all-hands-on-deck mentality amongst the church planting, what we, what we would call a core team. And um, uh, Nick and Cameron will talk a little bit more about what it means to be in this core team phase before you're in the launch phase. But there needs to be a certain amount of people who have really taken on the responsibility. And by that, I don't mean... You know, that you need to, like, you know, go to the mall and just meet random people and talk to them cold turkey. Although Nick and Cameron would do that with you if you wanted. (laughs) They like that sort of thing. But I actually think um, I actually think that's of secondary importance to you all uh, in the normal rhythms of your life. Just learning to begin to show hospitality uh, to people. And so what we what we used to talk about is. we used to, uh, we did this uh, Eat Like Jesus Month challenge, we called it, uh, uh, Eat Like Jesus. So that didn't mean that we, uh, you know, all ate sort of Jewish Mediterranean cuisine. Uh, our Eat Like Jesus challenge was, we noticed that as we read the Gospels, that Jesus didn't just eat with the people that he already knew and the people that totally agreed with him. That he was constantly, one of the accusations of the Pharisees was that he ate with sinners and tax collectors, right? He ate with prostitutes. He ate with people who were on the outside. 
And when he's challenged about that, when Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep or the parable of the lost coin or the parable, the, you know, parable of the prodigal son, that's actually an explanation to the Pharisees as to why he eats with those kind of people, right? Because he came to seek and save what is lost. And so um, as the people of God, what the Eat Like Jesus uh, challenge was is we said, you know, depending on the shape of your life, maybe it's once a week, maybe it's every other week. What if you set aside every other Thursday and said, this is a night where we're just going to invite someone from work that we've begun to build a relationship with or some neighbor that we've like had some kind of kind conversation with, you know, some family member who maybe used to follow the Lord but doesn't anymore. And um, we're just going to intentionally host them. We'll pray for them beforehand and just ask them questions and look for opportunities to share what the Lord is up to in your life and to share a little bit about this new church that you're a part of and say, you, you should really come check it out sometime, right? So you could bring them as your special guest before launching. Now, um, I, I think that's something that everybody could do, right? Like we could all do that. We live so siloed and so disconnected from our coworkers, you know, from our neighbors. It's not that normal for people to be invited into someone's home and just to be listened to. So just the ministry, it's, it's so important. It's actually, like I said, I, I, I don't have anything against. In fact, I think it's cool to, you know, pray for someone in the mall that you've never met. That's great. But are we living our lives as disciples in just the every, like just the day to day? And what was really helpful for my wife and I is if we knew, yeah, Thursday night's our hospitality night, we knew we already had that planned out. We sort of sectioned that off. And so if we talked to someone throughout the week, we knew that we were just free to say, hey, you should, you should come over on Thursday. We like to just kind of like open up our house that night. You should, you should come do that. And we didn't have to like have like a discussion with each other. Every once in a while, we might have both invited somebody, but that's not a bad thing either, right? <laughs> they can... So um, I want to encourage all of you to begin to take on a simple spiritual discipline. And, and you, don't, you don't have to force it if it's not, if the first conversation is it's not ready for that yet, you know. Um, use, use spiritual discernment. But can you imagine the way that adoration would grow, you know, over the next six months or nine months if everyone just had a sort of, low pressure but but continued faithful commitment to show hospitality to others and invite them to adoration and not only that if you do that the church will grow in a much more healthy way than if it just grows because like there's a personality cult surrounding cameron or they're like i like the music here better than at the last church that i was in like it, as good as good preaching and good music are isn't it better if the church is growing because the body, the hands and feet of the body of Christ are reaching out and there's a relational inroad that's happening? You will grow through word of mouth. You will grow through somebody hearing Cameron's sermon online and being like, I want to check this out. And that's great. But are we committed to a culture, to developing a culture of invitation? So I, I want to encourage you guys to make a tangible commitment related to that, to pray for one another's, you know, maybe top two or top three people that you're hoping would be a part of this church, and, um, and to kind of hold each other accountable, you know, to, to be uh, reaching out. 
In fact, if, if some of you are like a little bit intimidated by that, um, pairing up with one another might be a good thing too. So like you have a friendship with someone else in this church and you, you do this together. You know, maybe you invite somebody together. So, so that's, that was the, um, the second thing. Oh yeah, put the marker back here. Okay. Um, so um, uh, number three, um, we want, uh, before you launch, to, um, uh, to develop children's ministry. Um, and it doesn't have to be fully mature or fully developed, um, but you want there to be provision for kids and families that will come to your church. Um, this is actually a really easy thing to argue for because not only um, is it intrinsically valuable, it's valuable in and of itself to um, disciple children that come to your church and to have something for them and to, you know, as Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Um, but um, it's actually very strategic for the growth of a church. So um, it's kind of, um, we used to say it's like, oh man, it costs a lot to like hire, you know, a child care worker or to make sure that everybody's background checked and certified or to, you know, like one of our first hires was a, was a part-time children's minister who was just thinking about, all right, how do we do Bible study and how do we do creative prayer with the kids and all this sort of stuff? Um, you know, it seems like, oh, you know, do we really have that despair? We're trying to figure out how to pay the bills. We're trying to figure out how to like pay a clergy person. Like, you know, what, what do we do with this? Um, but we used to talk about it's like it's penny wise and dollar foolish not to invest in children's ministry because a family will come. They'll they'll come with kids and there might be awesome music. There might be a really vibrant community. There might have been a great sermon. But if the parents feel like they were herding cats the whole time, they're not going to be able to experience that. It's also very loving, uh, especially for young mothers. Um, and I'm thinking about how both Nick and Cameron have mothers with young kids, you know, who are not even in the room right now, right? Uh, and um, and uh, did I say mothers? <laughs> they both do have mothers too, but I, I meant to say wives. <laughs> Their wives probably mother them sometimes. <laughs> uh, but um, but yeah, so um, it's really and. Um, Personally, uh, there, there's a lot of resources we have for this. Um, I don't think that means that the kids are always off doing their own thing, completely separate. At Incarnation, I want to say the kids are in the service probably half the time. Um, but, but we always have you know, sufficient, trained, you know, background check, child care workers. We always have some people who are ready to lead them in a Bible study. And... Like I said, you're not gonna you're not gonna kind of like develop it to like sort of like level nine before you launch, but but that there's some development, that there's some provision, and that there's a commitment to um, continue to sow into that. It's really really important. There also needs to be a, a culture in the church of, of really tolerating children noise. Um, I I I highly doubt. 
that when Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount, or when he's like teaching the crowds before he like multiplies the loaves, and it says there were 5,000 men, not including women and children, like I highly doubt that the children were just like sitting there like crisscross applesauce, completely peaceful, <laughs> like meditating as Jesus was teaching them. Like you have to get used to and almost consider it I mean, I mean, obviously, if things start to get like really, really loud, the parents, you know, are, are going to try to scurry and, and help with that. But um, it's more important that the people who, who don't have kids um, feel a sense of like, this is just kind of our community. It's part of almost like the communal noise of what we're doing, because when there's life in a church, there's kids in a church. Yes. Right. Um, and so. There needs to be a, just kind of a culture of toleration, a sort of all hands on deck. Maybe some of you are teachers. Maybe some of you are the favorite aunt or uncle of little kids, and, you know, whatever. And, and, and you would be awesome uh, helping teach the kids or, you know, taking uh, a Sunday uh, every month or every six weeks or whatever to say, like, I'll, I'll go and watch them. That's fine. I'll listen to the sermon on audio later this week. And then I, I still have my small group later this week is a place um, where I can meet the Lord as well. So just want to encourage that. Um, number four, um, I think um, in, in order to be ready to launch, there needs to be um, sacrificial giving from the core team. So um, I work for our bishop, um, um, but like our diocese doesn't have like a huge budget or whatever, but we do have some money that we use to help church plants initially. Um, but um, the, the main thing that needs to happen is that the core team sort of takes responsibility and says like, we want to provide for this church. We want to provide for our pastors. We need to figure out how we can pay for whatever space we're going to be in when the church no longer we're not big enough for the free space that you know new city church praise god this space i really love this space by the way but you you won't be small enough for long to meet here and there's going to be like um kind of make it or break it times in your church where you're like if we don't have the money to like pay for a space like we're gonna just be stuck at 45 people you know or like if we don't you know, it's one thing, you know, the, the diocese uh, gives um, some funding to Cameron. Um, you know, we do some uh, fundraising training. It's one thing for a pastor to say, okay, like, I can convince my wife to, you know, operate on thin rations for a while and we'll do some fundraising or whatever. But in the, you know, in the long run, it needs to be viable uh for your pastors to be able to be here and say like we're going to be able to pay the bills there's going to be basic provision uh neither nick nor cameron think they're going to get rich by doing church work that's not the reason why they're here but um also the other thing that i want to say is it's really important that there be a culture of sacrificial giving giving of tithing among the core team because when you add people later on um Usually, um, so I know this as a church planter, um, it takes a while for people to kind of get used to the church. Maybe they're new to following Jesus and stuff like that. And so one of the sort of last things to be converted in people is their wallets. <laughs> um, so you have an opportunity to sort of like anchor this church with your giving. 
Um, and I just really want to encourage you to do that. Um, and um, what was what was the fifth thing that I was going to say? What did somebody just say? I just said remember, remember. Okay. Um, I'll remember. Um, I, I just uh, I, I was just talking about this with you guys yesterday. Do you remember what I said? And I would just talk to this other church on Thursday. <laughs> I'll remember. I'll remember. Um, let me just pause there for just a second, though, and just say any thoughts, questions, comments, mad rants, or prophetic utterances so far. Yeah. 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 So we we call them uh, missional communities, um, in part because we want all of these small groups to be places that do something to evangelize or to serve the poor, to bless the Tallahassee community outside of that group. And some of our missional communities have like eight people, and some of them have like forty. Um, and so for us, it was a little bit different. I would say the kind of community group sort of small group um, model is more common. And, um, you know, if you have a few groups that are somewhere between six and 15 people, I think that's great, you know? So yeah. another question. So if somebody has on their heart, like, I want to work at a soup kitchen downtown, yeah. that would be, for them to raise that and say, go to Cameron and Nick and say, okay, I want to leave this group. Or if another, another group Yeah. And they would meet together and then go out into the community? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I'm just going to make, make a note uh, real quick right here um, so that I don't forget my fifth thing. But, okay. <laughs> I remembered, but. Um, so we talk about with our, with our missional communities, with our small groups, we talk about three different loves. Love for God, love for each other, and love for the world. What you're talking about is a kind of like love for the world component. And that doesn't always have to come from like the leader of the group, but sometimes it's somebody who has a good connection. You know, they're like, you know, one or two people in this church work with like a crisis pregnancy center or like a soup kitchen or something like that. Uh, prison ministry, you know, something. And, and, um, and they become kind of coordinators for a specific small group for that mission. But somebody else might be a really good Bible study leader. You know, or and then there might even be like a third person who's like, well, I'll host this group. And I think we found um, that part of the thing that makes small groups work for people is um, like optionality. So if all your small groups meet on Wednesday night, there will be a good number of people in your church that are just not available. So it's good to have like, oh, we have two or three different nights where they meet. Maybe if all your small groups um, meet every week, that, that might be actually a little bit more than some people are able to do, but it's nice to have one that maybe meets every other week or something like that. Um, we found it's important for one of our small groups to have childcare. Um, and so, so yeah, I think um, like, a different, like a different amount of optionality is important when it comes to small groups. Any other 
Any other questions? Yeah. Like a clarifying question on that. You know, we've, we've been talking about the possibility in the new year of kind of pulling the core team back together for a time for a weekly meeting to kind of really dig into some of this stuff and talk about what it would look like and some aspects of discipleship and mission. Um, like, is there, would you suggest like a specific timeline for that? Like, you know, you don't want to have everybody just kind of all together and that's all you have um, for forever. Mm -hmm. And then, at, but at some point, I imagine you want to branch out and yeah. start planning, like what are the groups going to look like? You know, could you speak into that at all? Sure. Um, so we think of our small groups as, um, or missional communities as running on like a yearly schedule, basically. Um, and, um, but a new one could start at any time. It could start mid-year. Um, some of our groups, like the, the missional community that I'm a part of, has been, this, we're in our fourth year of doing the same group. So we don't tell groups that they have to end. But some groups sort of try what they do, and maybe it was great, but for whatever reason, this key leader is moving or they get a vision for something else, it only lasts a year. And then it's also important, um, midway and at the end, we always ask the question, is there anybody who could step up and be an apprentice leader in this group? So we have a culture of apprenticeship in our church. Sometimes the apprentices have more ministry experience than the leaders, but that's okay. We just say, we, we have everybody do an apprenticeship no matter what, right? And so we build an apprenticeship in a variety of ways. We build it into our prayer ministry on Sunday. If somebody hasn't been a part of prayer ministry before, we pair them with an experienced prayer minister. They get a little bit of like teaching, this is what we do and stuff like that. And they're paired with that person for a while before they start to do small uh, do ministry on their own. Same thing with children's ministry. We never like pass out a sign up sheet and like who wants to teach our kids next week no it's like first maybe they come and be a helper and then they can be a co-leader and they could be a leader similar with small groups um, we want there to be a culture of new leaders being raised up but we say first you're a member of a small group then you can be an apprentice and then you're not committing your life you know you might decide you don't really like it and we're not committing to say thumbs up to you because we're looking for it we used we, we like to say we're looking for fat leaders faithful, available, teachable, right? So <laughs> we're looking for those qualities and leaders. So, um, so I'm about to, tonight with our missional community leaders, we have our, our fall um, dessert and testimonies. We just kind of share testimonies of what, what the Lord has done. We, we kind of pray with each other for things that we feel like are coming up uh, in the new year for our groups. And we also talk about, is there anybody that we should be inviting into, into apprenticeship in our groups? So you really want to kind of create a culture of discipleship in that way in all your ministries. So we have a bias toward ministries that have an apprenticeship component in it, whether it's like Alpha or Kairos prison ministry or small groups or prayer ministry. We like that to kind of pervade the whole thing. All right, I'm going to say number five, and then I think there's a little bit more time for questions too, but um, um, so um, I want to say uh, communal preview services. So this, that's what you guys are doing today. Um, there are Sunday services that have started up that are kind of like a preview of what they will be after you launch and that um, there's multiple hands on deck. It's not all happening from the planters and from their spouses. There's other people bringing music. There's other people doing sound. There's other people bringing the coffee. I mean, see, you guys are really there already with this. 
I think part of that is because of um, uh, so many of you having been in community at Good Shepherd before, and so already having a culture of that. Um, but you want to increase that all the more because um, once again, you don't want this church to be like a cult of personality. You want it to be a place where different members of the body are able to use their gifts. And so, um, you know, some of you will be readers and some of you will be prayer ministers and some of you will be, you know, children's teachers. And so um, just try to continue to develop that little by little so that when you start and let's just say, um, when you're when you're planting a church, it's about loving one another and about loving the Lord, but it's also about preparing to love the next 45 people. Um, and if they all come at once, is it going to be like Nick and Cameron are just like butter scraped over too much bread, to quote from Bilbo Baggins? Uh, or is it going to be like, well, this is a dynamic community where there's a lot of empowered people, and, and there are people who notice new people. There are, there's maybe somebody has a great, you know, experience being prayed for by Cecilia that, that day. And, and that's the thing that makes them come back, not just the message, right? So that's the idea. Um, what time is it, brother? Okay. Uh, so I think we have time for some more questions. And um, like I said... Uh, I, I don't mean to be too interruptive of worship. We are going to have time to come around the Lord's table later. But I told Nick and Cameron that I kind of want to workshop with your people a little bit this morning. So, uh, But before we kind of, I, I want to cluster up uh, and share a little bit. But before we do that, um, any other questions? Yeah. In our past sermons, we've been talking about discipleship. Where would that fit in, I guess, bringing up the church? Where would that fit in what? In bringing up the church, yeah. Like I said, I, um, I think everything that's worthwhile to do in a church relates to discipleship. So a lot of times I think we think of discipleship in a very kind of two-dimensional way where we might say, like, I've never really been discipled. And by that, what we usually mean is I've never met one-on-one with an older believer who is intentionally investing in me. Now, I want to say that's a good thing <laughs> to meet with an older believer who's intentionally investing in you. But um, every time a sermon is preached, it's a discipleship opportunity. Every time you worship the Lord, it's a discipleship opportunity. Every time you go to Bible study and you guys are opening up the Word of God and studying Exodus or studying Mark or studying Philippians, it's a discipleship opportunity. When you're in community and you know each other and you're starting to kind of like make some bad decisions in your life and someone in your small group or someone at this church says, hey man, I... I've noticed things aren't like going well and I think that this thing that's going on is is not right. You know, maybe you get like a challenging word from a brother or sister in this community. That's a discipleship opportunity. Now, uh, I think to to maybe answer maybe more in line with the nature of the question uh, in terms of kind of like intentional discipleship and formation, um, that's that's where I would say um, what I was getting at with ministries having an apprenticeship component, because I think that developing people in their gifts is so important for discipleship. Um, I, I tend to think that we drastically um, overemphasize like an educational model in the church. And like education is good, good, you know, classes are good, but like we need to be equipped to live the Christian life, you know? And, um, and so... 
Um, so having an opportunity, if you're a part of this church for a while and you have an opportunity to learn prayer ministry and you've never done that before, there's things you're going to learn about your walk with Jesus from getting apprenticed into that that you haven't learned yet. Maybe some of you have been following the Lord for a long time and you have like a vibrant relationship with him, but you've never really been a part of a church that emphasizes small group ministry. And you have an opportunity to be trained in that. It's not going to be the right ministry for everyone, right? So I think that culture of training, of leadership development is important. I've also found it to be the case, and I think Nick and Cameron are going to be really good at this, that there are certain times like in the life of our community where it's like, we need to address this topic. And that can come through preaching. It can come through like almost like communal disciplines. Like, like, like a couple years ago, we, we encouraged like complete fasting from social media and from, from all recreational internet use for the, for the season of Lent. Um, because we were just like, this is getting out of hand. And it wasn't just our church, it's just getting out of hand in the culture, right? And so as we're trying to kind of live that out, discipleship is going on. So I think, I think every time you add something to the church, you never want it to be like, this is so that we can just fill out our calendar. <laughs> you know, you want it to be that like, um, like a strategic and prayerful decision is being made about like, yeah, we should have a men's retreat or a women's retreat because like that would really help with the discipleship. Or we should, um, you know, do a series on human sexuality or whatever because like there are a lot of people asking questions about this right now and we need to address that. So, so yeah, I think there's a sort of like a, a sort of daily bread component to just the liturgical calendar, the preaching and teaching, small groups, but then you as a church can, can discern when you need to do some catalytic discipleship in a certain area. Yeah. Yeah, anything else? Maybe one more question? 